Okie dokie, folks. Welcome to the Roots Report podcast, presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, Arwen Entertainment, The Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Grace Ale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SE Microphones. I am your host, John Fusick. Today we have singer, songwriter, author, actor, and activist Steve Earle. Earle is touring, supporting his 22nd release, Jerry Jeff. Steve Earle and the Dukes will be at the Odeon in East Greenwich on July 17th. How are you, Steve? I'm all right. We've we've met and talked to a few times uh, over the years. Yeah, you, you look familiar. Yeah, you look familiar. Actually, the first time we met was oh back in the early '90s at the Newport Folk Festival, and I I distinctly remember you having a shirt on that said "Fuck you, you fucking fuck." I love that's that shirt. Awesome. That's a that's a New York shirt. I think I bought it on the street in New York right after I moved there. So yeah. where are you living these days? I've been in New York for for 17 years. Oh, okay. Because I remembered the quote that you would move there because you wanted to walk out your door and see a... Yeah, a... And, I, and I did, and I haven't left. I mean, I've still got a house in Tennessee, but I'm, I live in New York for a long time now. Yeah, you had that quote where you wanted to walk out on the street and see a mixed-race, uh, uh, same-sex couple walking the street without a problem or something like that, something yeah, that... I stand by that. Yeah, that's, that's one quote I don't regret. I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately quotable. It gets me in trouble sometimes. But that one I'm okay with. <laughs> You have a new album out, uh, Jerry Jeff. It's uh, it's a recording of Jerry Jeff Walker songs. Yeah. That's your twenty second album. Yeah, it is. Um, tell me. I just listened to it. It sounds great. Um, I I love your version of Mr. Bojangles. I I play that. I'm pretty my... proud of that. And it's a big. That's a big. You know. That's a big one to tackle. Oh, it is. It's one of those songs that's just sort of a big deal. You know. There's not many songs like that. I did it at the Grand Ole Opry about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, and it was the first time I'd sung it in public since I was 19 years, probably 18 or 19 years old. Because I I started singing when I was 14 because my drama teacher in high school wanted me to sing it in a play and then I met Jerry Jeff when I was 19 I had to stop singing it so I hadn't sung it in a long time and it was and I looked up in the balcony at the Opry House not the Ryman the Opry House which is a lot bigger it's like over 3,000 seats and um, or 3,400 seats I think and I looked up and every cell phone light the balcony was lit and about half the ones on the floor by the time I finished and it's that song you know that doesn't happen with eight most of the time it's just it's a great song and, and, and I wanted to make a record that were all his songs because he also interpreted other people's material I I'd already done the Guy Clark songs on the guy that he was famous for on, on the guy out. But it was, I had to complete the set. Towns Guy, Jerry Jeff, those were my guys when I first started doing this. So. And you worked with all three of them, too. Yeah, I, I knew all of them. I knew, you know, Jerry Jeff, I was, I, I knew about before I knew him. I mean, I'm on Guy's first record, you know. So um, that's a little different deal. But what, what I knew about him and I looked up to him. And the same with Towns was making records before I met. But I knew Towns. I met Towns when I was 17. Uh, I was in the same room with Jerry Jeff a few times around that time. But he, he wouldn't have remembered. But then when he, you know, when I moved to Nashville, I immediately fell in with Guy. And they were close. So once Jerry Jeff started coming through and I was in Guy's crew, then Jerry Jeff remembered me. And we, you know, we, we were in and out of touch. The last few years of his life, we were in touch a lot. It started with Django, his son had moved to Nashville, and he called me and said, hey, I want you to, you know, help Django get settled in Nashville. I said, Jerry Jeff, I just moved to New York. And uh, and he, and I, but I hooked him up with some telephone numbers and stuff. And from that point on, we were sort of in touch because he started, we, we mainly, we texted a lot the last, you know, 10 years or so and 12 years or so of his life. And, and I'm glad Guy, the, the other thing that kind of brought us together was Guy passed away and we did a memorial concert for Guy and it was like, uh, I'm still not sure about that. Oh, shut up, Siri. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, my phone 
activated and started talking to me. So um, I read that you were you were Jerry Jeff's designated driver. Yeah, which wasn't a job. It was just Jerry Jeff was reticent about driving in Nashville. And after I left Guy's band, I would be like, uh, you know, just in Nashville, Jerry Jeff would pass through. And he, for some reason, was reticent about driving. So he'd come get me. And of course, I would go. I mean, I got to hang out with Jerry Jeff all night wherever he went, which was a lot of places. And some of them were interesting. He actually came and got me one night and, and said, uh, hey, I, I want you to come come play a song for Neil and I didn't know who the fuck Neil was and we got to the Spence Manor the, uh, we got to the Spence Manor and, and um, there was like uh, it was Neil Young and but he didn't want me to play one of my songs there's a David Only song called Illegal Cargo and he had never heard Only and you know he and Guy and me and a bunch of people were hanging out one night and I was I've been playing my songs and I just I did you know something I did something Jerry Jeff did I championed my friend's songs that I thought were under you know under promoted and, and, and under promoted themselves and Only was one of them and I played Illegal Cargo and it's and he loved the song and he didn't know how to get a hold of David Only and so he wanted he'd been hanging out with Neil and he came and got me and drug me over to the Spence Manor to play a David Only song for Neil Young. <laughs> and, uh, but I got to meet Neil Young. That's cool. I went, oh, my feelings were a little hurt, but it, played, it was okay. Looking <laughs> through a paint box, looking for. I, I gotta finish. Uh, I started a painting. I need to finish by day after tomorrow because it's an anniversary gift for Terry and, and Joe Harvey Allen, their 60th wedding anniversary, and I'm trying to finish a painting for them. Oh, you paint as well? I didn't know that. I did started. I just started like about 20 years ago because Terry Allen, you know, he said, you know, I told him about the I was the novel and the theater company I'd started and blah blah. He, he first first time he saw me after I got out of jail, and he goes, you know, I told him all the stuff I was doing is all these projects. He goes, cool man, don't you do any visual arts? And and uh, you know, do you know who Terry is? You know the name, but I can't place it. That Bobby Bear did. He wrote New Delhi Freight Train. The Little Feet he did. Oh, okay. Songwriting's not his day job. He's a visual artist. He's a sculptor and a painter. Mm-hmm. And um, he's uh, he's one of my he's he's kind of the last of my teachers of that generation. And he and Joe Harvey are celebrating their 60th anniversary in Marfa. Wow. So we're gonna go in between the Dallas Outlaw Show and the picnic on um, the two days later. We're gonna run out to Marfa and put in an appearance there and double back to Austin in time to load in for the picnic. Is that Willie? picnic yeah, yeah that's where I'm, I'm i'm here in arkansas now i hook up with willie tomorrow night and do three of the outlaw you know uh, tour shows including the picnic oh stuff. cool i did i um you you seem like you are so uh prolific in what you do i mean you write you've written books you've written plays you've acted you're a songwriter you're a performer uh you've been in tv shows now you're working on a musical too for tender mercies yeah, I'm working on a, a musical of tender mercies with uh the Horton Foote, who wrote, you know, do you, you know that film, Tender Mercy? Yeah, Robert, Robert yeah, Robert Duvall was in Robert that. Duvall, yeah, and the, the, that was written by a friend of his who, you know, they had known each other, come up at the Pasadena Playhouse together, and it was um, uh, Horton Foote, who also wrote The Trip to Bountiful, playwright, mainly, and he's the reason, Horton is the reason that uh, Duvall got his first acting role, because he adapted To Kill a Mockingbird, and, um, because of that, he, he wrote the screenplay, and they, when they were casting Boo Radley, they worked together at Pasadena Playhouse. They said, "Hey, I know a guy that's perfect for Boo Radley," and that's how Robert Duvall got his first film role. Hmm. 
which was a very small part. You know, Blue Radley was the kid, was the guy, the weird guy that everybody made fun of down the street. He was probably, you know, what they called mentally retarded then. And, and uh, but uh, a really interesting character. Everybody was afraid of him. It turned out he was just, he was just a little, he was disabled somehow and had been, didn't go anywhere, but he was a shut in. And, and that's an interesting character, but that was, that was his first role. So it's, Tinder Varsity is perfect for me. Daisy Foot, Horton's daughter, was have been looking for somebody to write the music for it for a long time. And we started working on it about a year ago. First act's pretty much written. When I get off the road in September, that becomes my day job. I look at you and I hear the name Steve Earle and I don't think musical. That's that's one thing I don't think of musical, but why not? I think that's a prejudice against musical theater. And I oh, I love musical theater. It, I yeah. Trust me, I've, I've grown up with it, and I love it. It is a prejudice. It was for a long time, you know? Right. And, and, and it's also the only place there's any mailbox money left for songwriters. So, you know, I, I love it, and, and it's just, I've lived in New York all this time, and I've lived there to do theater. I wanted to write plays. Then it occurred to me how stupid it was for me to avoid the idea of being a, of a musical. So I've got this one going where I'm just writing music and lyrics i've also got a musical of tender Mer- i mean of uh washington square serenade when i started it in mm-hmm. my head it was a musical and i chickened out and i'm circling back to that and i'm trying to develop that as a musical as well then i'll write the book as well now what what musicals do you, musicals that you like that you may may aspire to um historically you know the ones the the big ones are the big ones for a reason oklahoma um I, my favorite is probably carousel just because it's dark and and, and that, that was circling back to carousel reminded me of what musicals could be mm-hmm. and it started because of a few things that happened recently on broadway you know there was a musical of spring awakening and duncan sheik's a friend yeah i love that one he wrote the music for that and that just showed that and those you know that last sweeney todd where everybody played their own instruments those two things kind of happen one after the other oh, i didn't know about that and one think oh you know what i can this is this is interesting it may be time for me to think about a musical well you've got uh, uh what's her name uh oh, now i'm think can't think of her name uh cindy lopper no uh anias mitchell uh, yeah yeah she's she's taught at my songwriting camp last year and man i've seen Hades town i saw it three times in new york theater workshop and i saw it twice on broadway and um still up uh, and it's great but it's also not exactly what i'm trying to do because it's what you know i see that's the thing i thought about musicals and i just hit andrew lloyd webber <laughs> slipped away when, when when Weber was the guy and still is I guess when it gets right down to it and I'm probably fucking myself by saying that but the deal is they're they're also not whether you like the songs or not I love Jesus Christ oh that's one of my favorites totally it blows my mind and 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 I, I know that record the original cast record I know every second of it I played it over and over right. and over again but and then the aliens came and got that guy <laughs> <laughs> Also, not book musicals. There are operas, right? And so is Hades Town, right? But Hades Town is great. But I really wanted to. It, it, it occurred to me that the book musicals an American invention, just like the blues and rock and roll and bluegrass and jazz. It's an American art form. We invented that, and I and I wanted. I just want to take a whack at it. And I and I, I've seen a lot. I've seen some great stuff. Girl from the North Country is fucking great. Have you seen it? No, not yet. I haven't. Seen, it hasn't. I don't think it's come around here yet. It is fucking great. It's not a, a jukebox musical. You know, a lot of the songs that, that would be there if it was a jukebox musical are not there. It was the songs were chosen strictly to move this story along, and, and Bob really loved it. And um, 
No, he's a tough. Right. He's a tough one to, really, to truly please. That's live and not me out. I saw it. I saw it in previews on Broadway. You know, I was at. I was in a show that was up at the Public Theater, and the public produced. You know, just moved Girl from the North Country out of the theater we were in up to Broadway, and they were in previews, and I got to see a preview before we all got shut down. You know, and no. Cold Country that that uh, I wrote the music for, and I actually performed them. Cold Country. It's um, you know that record of mine, Ghosts of West Virginia, a few years ago. Those songs, most of them were written for a, a, a play called Coal Country that's it's a documentary theater piece about an explosion in a coal mine ranch that happened 12 years ago. Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen wrote it, and I wrote the music and performed it in the, in the um, off-Broadway version. We started at the public, we got shut down by COVID, and then the public, co-producing it with Audible, put it up at Cherry Lane after we got going again. It just closed a couple of weeks right before I got, you know, on this bus to come do this tour. Well, I, I hope, uh, I look forward to seeing something, because I, I would like to see what uh, you do turn out for a musical. Um for that well we're, we're we're shooting being up at hartford stage in 23 24 which would which would if we don't fall apart you know, <laughs> put us in broadway the next season cool yeah i'd like to see that because i mean i'm a writer i write i perform and i write as well and you know my mother got me into musical theater and she's she's a huge you know she loves broadway and uh you know that would be something that i would aspire to sometime down the line i would like to do something like that but that's you know i'm getting up there in years it's really hard work oh it is i know it's like uh roseanne cash and, and her husband you know uh, john leventhal are working on a musical of norma ray they've been working on for 10 years i think they're finally going to get into workshops finally i, it, I heard workshopping and starting in september and then we should be at, our goals be up at, at hartford stage in 23 24 great so i wanted to uh swing totally around and try to get your viewpoint i know this i know you're a very politically and socially active person and i've been kind of really disturbed by the goings on in this country lately i just kind of wanted to get your views because i know that we pretty much share the same viewpoint on things and it would be you know i I like giving people the voice to let their voice be heard about what's going on in this country and especially you know texas texas seems to have gone off the deep end too well i mean look I, i mean i just came from texas and i'm going back tomorrow night so um, the show here um this is a good example that's where i'm from and i didn't nobody could imagine it being what it is now when i lived there when i left there in 1974 nobody could imagine a republican governor in texas in 1974. The first thing is, and and I pissed some of my lefty friends off a lot lately because I have reached a point where I think the problem is as much us as it is them. Oh, I agree. I totally agree. Democracies fail because (laughs) they won't talk to each other. Right. And while we were all picking one issue and didn't want to hear about any other issues, the people that really run things have been systematically, and it doesn't have as much to do with Trump as much. Trump is the end all and be all in the sense of what can become possible when you neglect the care and feeding of a democracy and it's happened every time that anybody's ever done that he's he is it's a scary thing i hope people pay attention to what happened yesterday and i hope the end that'll be the end of it but you know what i thought grabbing by the pussy was going to be the end of it. i know i can't believe I we all did so but we'll see but the, the idea that um, I made Ghosts of West Virginia because New Yorkers thinking they know what people in West Virginia are like and why they think what they think by saying, oh, that's a red state. It's not. It's a purple state. And whether you like Joe Manchin or not, he is a Democratic senator and his absence will fucking hurt. The point is that until we can have a conversation with somebody that we assume we're going to disagree with, we're 
fucked until we start talking again to get any of this stuff to work. While we've been at each other's throats, you know, on both sides of the aisle, whatever the fuck that is, is the people that really run things have been systematically loading the courts. So 870 people, that's how many federal judges there are, Hoss. 870 people that no one fucking voted for are deciding your future now. The Supreme Court, that's just like Trump. That means that it worked. It's finally come up the line. But if you look, Republicans have been way more successful at getting as many judges in as they could when they were in power. And they're in power in nearly every state. It has a lot to do with who goes up as a judge in the first place at the federal level. It's almost impossible for Democrats, even when they're in power, to load federal courts in Texas. They can't do it anymore. They used to be able to, but they can't now. So so we're going to have to start all over again. Roe's gone. It's gone for our lifetimes. I grew up in a Texas where abortion was illegal. I got my girlfriend pregnant when we were both 14. We figured we discovered something new, and it was great. We just did it all the time until she was pregnant within two months. And she got an abortion safely in a hospital because her father was a clinical psychologist on staff at a hospital. And the lawyers and the doctors all belong to the same country clubs. It's never been about whether people could get abortions or not. It's about whether poor people and working people get safe abortions. Uh, you know, that's we're going to have to go back to that. And that battle is going to have to be fought all over again. But there's a lot of other shit. The gun thing, you know, until we're willing to have a conversation with people, you know, that um, somebody really smart that I that I know. The guy named Lee Ballinger, who normally writes about music, said something that blew my mind a few years ago. He said, we'll never be able to solve any of the problems that surround either jobs, which is something everybody cares about, and the environment, which is something some people care about, but affects everybody. But we're never going to be able to solve all of the problems that, so, that involve those two things until we're willing to talk about both of those things in the same conversation, because they're directly linked to mm -hmm. the environment. Oh, they are. But manufacturing jobs did go away because we tried to improve the air so that we would suffocate. And that's why they went and to China, where they destroyed the environment. They went to China, and the coal in, in Upper Big Branch, when it blew up, it was it's blue coal, steel-making coal. Where was it going? We don't make steel. It was going to China and Malaysia. So um, I'm okay with the idea of a world economy. But, you know, we do have to, you know, that's what unions do. We, we Working people bought the idea that unions are bad, and they're not. Oh, they're, no, they're, I, I'm a pro-union person. Just, they're a necessity. The, the only, the one glimmer of hope for democracy, every place else in the world, unions are a fundamental <coughs> component of democracy. That's accepted. And here it's not. It never has been. Um, we've always been anti-union at our core. This country was not created in a revolution of people. It was a revolution of rich farmers who didn't want to pay their taxes, and we're still kind of... That's kind of who we are. We also were, were created so that the second and third sons of landed European families could seek their fortunes with slavery in their toolkit, even though it was illegal in Europe. That's a fact. And teach that. And, and we've never recovered from it. That's why we stumble over race. It's because it's in our DNA. So, I don't know. I'm still considering myself to be an optimist, but things that, you know, and, and I've been guilty. I've been guilty of being, like, pointing fingers and blaming it on other people and we're all complicit. We, we got to learn to speak to each other. I mean, I realized I used to I used to work the death penalty. That was my main issue. You know, the last war like um, kind of got me concentrating on some other things. But um, it's 
I used to hold, stand outside of prisons when someone was being executed, holding hands with somebody that was staunchly pro-life. I can't argue with them. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I understand what I'm saying? Right. If they're, if they're pro-life, and which makes them against abortion, but they're also against the death penalty, that really does make sense. Right, it does. I but a lot of them aren't. That's the problem. There's a yeah, and, and and so the point is, I have to be able to honor that. I have to be able to understand why they feel the way they do, especially in that situation. You know, I have to be able to honor that and have the conversation with you. You're never going to change anybody's mind that you're not talking to. True. You know, it can't be done. So I don't know. We've just got to get to the point where we're willing to. It's really not so much about talking; it's about listening. You know, True. look, I I went to it when we were doing the interviews for for Coal Country. I saw a Bernie Sanders rally in Beckley, uh, West Virginia, that was packed. They know Bernie Sanders because he's pro-union, and that was it. There's a lot of pro-union people there. The unions have been going away for a while. This was the first non-union mine on that mountain. That's why it blew up. So I saw all that, and then, you know, Hillary Clinton comes in and says, I'm going to close the coal mines. It was literally the first thing out of her mouth. She didn't say, I'm for clean air, I'm for clean coal, I'm for clean energy. She said, I'm going to close the coal mines. So that's why they voted for Donald Trump. Trump turned around and said, oh, I won't close the coal mines. And both of them were lying. Right. Neither one had that power. Right. So, you know, who are West Virginians going to vote for? People are, are a little empathy, a little putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is how we how we have to begin. And that doesn't mean I've changed my mind about anything. But I can't I can't change anybody's mind about anything. I can't expect them to come around to my viewpoint if I'm not willing to have a conversation with them, not willing to associate with them. Well, that's a good thing, and hopefully people will listen to that and maybe do that. We've got just a couple more minutes now. Um, you want to talk about your show coming up in like, the Greenwich Odium, what to expect? It's it's um, we, we do about half the Jerry Jeff record, and then we play a lot of songs people want to hear. It's a couple of hours, so, you know, when you get to my age, you figure out you're getting older than one of the main in my business because the line's longer at the men's room than it is at the <laughs> ladies' room at your shows. So... Go to the bathroom before we go out. Are you? Is it one long stretch? Are you taking an intermission? It's two hours. Yeah. No. The the, the, the Whitmore sisters play a half an hour. There's a thirty minute break, and then we play a little over two hours. Cool. One more thing. I, I noticed that you have a massive guitar collection. I do. How many guitars do you have? I don't. No, I haven't counted them in a while. It's, I think it's right around 200. Okay, yeah, I've, I've talked to uh, people who have massive guitar. Joe Bonamassa has about 400. Uh, yeah, he does. I've actually, you know, I got one guitar he missed. I know that much. <laughs> and he's got one I definitely wish I had. He's got one of these. He's got Jerry Jeff Walker Stratocaster. Oh, wow. And I would love to have that guitar. Do you know, I mean, do you know Emmy Lou's guy, Maple? Oh, yeah, he's one of my best friends. Yeah, I haven't seen him in years. I used to love talking to him when he when Emmy Lou was around. And... He has, he has the, the best, highest quality working man's guitar collection in the world. That's why I he brought him up. Lore, he has a Lloyd Lore signed, you know, like a F5. He has an L5, a Lloyd Lore signed L5. He has, uh, you know, he's got a lot of really, really cool instruments. Yeah, yeah, he was a really cool guy to talk to. I haven't seen him in a few years, but how's he doing anyway? He's doing great. He's still working with Emmy. I'll see him, uh, you know, I'll see him in a few, you know, I'll see him in October for sure if I don't see him before because we're going to do a bit of Hardly Strictly Bluegrass and Emmy and I are doing a benefit together out there before it starts. So. Cool, yeah. I always love to talk to him. He was, because I used to do some work with Gibson and he used to come and hang out and we'd chat and right. uh, he was he was such a cool guy and he used to tell me he about was, his... When I first met him, he was working for, he was, he was, uh, 
working for Steve Martin. Oh, really? And they, and they, yeah, and they worked with he worked with Steve Goodman too. Oh, cool. All right. Well, I think we just you know we've reached the time limit. I, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk. Appreciate it, and uh, good luck, and keep Thanks. up the fight. Okay. Okie dokie. Thanks to Steve Earle for being part of this episode of the Roots Report podcast. Steve Earle and the Dukes will be at the Odium in East Greenwich on July 17th. For more info, take the Copperhead Road over to GreenwichOdium.com. The Roots Report podcast is presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, The Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Grace Sale Brewing Everett Island, and SE Microphones. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.